chapter 4. Recently uh, read an article on of uh, psychology today. It's not a normal reading thing, but this particular article caught my interest. Uh, the author was, uh, was uh, working on uh, defining the differences between reacting and responding. Think about those words. In interpersonal relationships, I think the general practice is to react. Something happens, out it comes. Defining uh, these particular words, uh, the difference between responding and reacting. Reacting is, uh, is, is acting without thought or deliberation. No consideration about what the words that are coming out of our mouths, the impact they may have. Well, responding is acting, it's just the opposite. It is based on thoughtfulness and reflection, consideration, and it tends to re result in positive responses. Taking time to consider before we act. It is my hope, my friends, that in your life you are responding and not reacting. And... The fact of the matter is, we know that Israel wasn't much on responding thoughtfully, but reacting. Reminds me when I was a kid, summertime, you know, you're outside all day running around, riding bikes, doing what, you know, just tackling people. I don't know, some of you, that may not have been your, your childhood, but it was mine. And you come in and, you know, you get the call out on the front porch, come on in, it's dinner time, and you're hungry and you're thirsty and the food comes down and you just want to grab. Just want to, you know, we're going to pray in a little bit when mom sits down, but let's just start, you know, without some thought. I wonder if you ever caught, oh man, I didn't even thank God for this good meal. It's reacting. Food, eat. It tends to be a practice. And perhaps today we will learn a lesson that I sure wish the nation of Israel would have learned because what we are going to see this morning is yet one more part of this sin cycle. Here they are in the land and God is blessing them, but they look at their neighbors and they start to join and do the things that others are doing. And suddenly they are intermarrying and now they are worshiping other gods. And how does God respond to that? God is a jealous God. These people belong to him, not to some other God. And so he sells them into the hands of some enemy. This is called discipline, my friends. It's not punishment. Punishment we talked about this morning. Hell, discipline is, the purpose of discipline is to change the heart. And it happens over and over again in this book. 330 years this book covers. The book of Judges. But this morning we're going to we're gonna, I'm going to remind you of some phrases that perhaps I heard as a kid, maybe you did as well. Things my mom reminded me of along the way that surely would have been helpful for the nation of Israel to learn. And the first 
We will find in verses one and two, and it is this, be sure your sin will find you out. It's an obscure passage in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. Easy to mix those up. 32 and 23. Be sure your sin. It is a warning to the nation of Israel. You cannot hide from God. God loves you. God is concerned about every area of your life. There are no gray areas for God. His light shines in all of them. And had they known that, perhaps they would have been more careful where they turned their eyes and how they satisfied their appetites. So in verse 1, we see that Israel returns to sin. And the people of Israel did again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And that gives her the Ehud. You say, well, what kind of name is that? I don't know. His mom thought of it. I don't know. Uh, but you know what? He, he was a, a great deliverer, but God used him to deliver Israel out of the hands of the last time they did this. And what it tells us is they kept with God as long as this guy kept on top of them. But when he died, they went back to the same old garbage And you will notice, when Israel returns to sin, God chooses a means of discipline. Again, the purpose is to change their heart. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And what does that mean, king of Canaan? Canaan was this enormous land full of all sorts of people groups. Well, likely what this meant was that he was a head over a confederacy of kings, all joining together under his leadership. And so the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagaim. And so there's their circumstance. They have sinned. And the God who loves them does not say, I've had enough, forget about it. God will never do that. What God does is begin to work on their heart. How do we put them in a right situation until they return to him? And so God sells them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And then comes our second phrase, my friends. Familiar to you or maybe new, don't just cry, cry out to God. Don't just cry, cry out to God. Let that one sink deep. The scripture here tells us here in verse 3, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For Sisera had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. 20 years, which seems to indicate it took them about 20 years to cry out to God until they had finally had enough. And my friends, our Heavenly Father knows exactly what it is that we need, how, what kind of discipline will reach into your heart and begin to turn, how long you need to endure it. Our Heavenly Father doesn't have to guess, my friends. He knows it. So when things begin to go sour in your life and you can't explain the pattern of 
of just frustrations. Another flat? Where am I driving that? Why is there so much traffic here suddenly? Why doesn't this pen work? I just bought the thing. And these frustrations begin to mount. I would counsel you to say, is there sin in my life that God is trying to get my attention? And even if there's not, let your first thoughts always be toward God. Is there a pattern erupting here that God may try to get my attention about something? And so, don't just cry. Cry out to God. They suffered the hands of these people for 20 years before they cried out to God. Crying out to God. I want to tell you something, friend. That's, that's not a slogan. I'm not say, suggesting somebody start a business and make some bumper stickers. I'm telling us that we need to practice this. When I think about crying out to God, I am reminded of uh, Luke 23 at the cross. You remember when Jesus was crucified? He was crucified between two thieves. And there they were up on the cross. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. This is Luke 23, 32 and 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Wasn't wearing them, friends. When Jesus was crucified, the whole point was to cause as much pain and shame as possible. Hmm. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. I mean, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one... And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, <laughs> taunting him. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a cry of hope. If there is any hope for me, a condemned criminal, it is Jesus. And do you know what Jesus said to him? Too late for you, bucko. He didn't say that at all, did he? And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He cried out to God. And God gave him paradise. It's a lesson to be learned here, my friends. Well, the nation of Israel suffering cruelly at the hands of this man and this nation, 
They cried out to God. And here in verse 4, God provides a deliverer. Not one that you would expect. In this passage here today, we're going to discover yet once again that God takes great pleasure in using the most unexpected people who seem to be unqualified and, 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 oh, they're just not the right fit. Lest you sit here this morning and say, well, I can see God using them, but not me. Take a look. Now, Deborah, her name means bee, as in, not Brittany, but uh, a bumblebee, think of that. A prophetess. Deborah, a prophetess. Well, that's unusual, isn't it? God tends to do those sorts of things. The wife of, uh, the wife of uh, Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. What do you mean by that? Look at verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Can't figure it out among yourselves? Go get some help. It's wisdom, friends. And they would come to Deborah. Now, God had raised up this uh, courageous woman named Deborah, and she was judging Israel here to be this judge in this land. And it was really an act of grace, but it was also an act of humiliation toward these people. There is a pattern that goes all the way back to creation about leadership among the people of God. The fact that it is unusual for, for a woman to be a prophetess is because God has always chosen men. But in this particular circumstance, in an act of grace, God chose a woman. Perhaps because there were no men qualified to speak for God. Hmm. Even now in the churches today, there is, a, there is an issue going on. You, you may not know about it, and that's okay. But there is, there is a, a thing going on. You, you may have heard of the name Beth Moore. Her real name is Wanda. But if my name was Wanda, I might change it to Beth too. I don't know. But, <laughs> but she, she started out with this, this fantastic ministry to women teaching them Bible study and just living out the word of God in a great focus. And it's always the case, regardless of where you start, ministry drift sets in. You begin to move into other areas. Success here means I can go there. She's part of the Southern Baptist Convention and they're addressing an issue going on in which she is determined now that she can preach on Sunday mornings. And the problem with that is not our culture. Our culture is fine with such things. And if it weren't for the word of God, I would be fine with such things. But the fact is that the word of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And why? Is Paul sexist? Is he a misogynist? Does he hate women? Is that the issue? 
You know why? Was it part of the culture of the day? And that this was some strategic move? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he gives the very reason. In verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to be, remain quiet. But, and why? He uses the word for, and for gives us an explanation. It's an explanatory word. And here's the explanation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, part of the created order. This is God's strategy, okay? This is not about qualification or who's better fit for what. This is a complementary relationship that we have. And God has chosen that men should lead and teach, teaching being authoritative. I stand up here and I speak, and you expect that these words are going to be true and authoritative. You should still test them, however. Look it up, make sure what I say is true, friends. But Paul goes right back to God's design. First was Adam, first was the man, then was the woman. And so this, this would have been some, some, somewhat of a shame for the people of Israel. Not because she was not qualified. Obviously, God had made her a, a prophetess. But notice that God not only had sent this prophetess. Now, what, what, is, what does a prophet do? Prophet do. A, a prophet speaks for God, not in God's place, but God brings a message and the message is communicated, Okay? So it is different than a pastor. I study the word of God. I use the skills and the studies that I have in my past to communicate it clearly. It's different. These are words that God has sent for the prophet to speak. Sometimes a prophet, as we often think, will talk about the future, foretelling, okay? Telling what's going to happen before it happens, okay? We often think of the word prophecy related to that. And sometimes it's just go, go tell that person to stop sinning. You know, famously throughout the Bible, Nathan came and told a little story to David. Nathan was a prophet about a, a man who had great riches. And there was a man next to him who had a lovely little lamb and he came and he took it. And David said, that man shall die. Nathan said, you the man. Yeah, speaking for God. And we're going to see that happen here. So notice, God not only uh, sent a prophetess, God provided a judge in Barak. Notice in verse 6, Jesus, or I'm sorry, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? <coughs> And so here is Deborah saying, this is what the Lord has said. You, <laughs> go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. These are tribes in Israel. And verse 7, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. These are the words of God, not the encouragement of someone. I'm sure that God will do it really simply means I hope so. That's not what we're looking at here. 
God told this man to go and raise up these troops and meet them in battle and God will give them into their hands, into your hand, which means he will be victorious. Why? Because God is at work, not because he's particularly skilled, but because God is going to do the work to bring him success. So here we are, my friends. Verse 7. Gathering your men, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to, to meet you by the river Kishon. Now, that's very important here. We'll find in the story. And with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Seems unlikely, because chariots are hard to stop. I mean, these great big machines of war against people? What hope is there? Well, again, the purpose was not to go and trust in their own strength, but to trust in God. Now, how would you respond to such an order? If God sent a prophet to you, these are the words of God. Go and go and create this business. Lay it out. Spend the capital. Invest in employees. And you will be successful. You might say, well, I've never done that before. Well, you might make up all sorts of excuses. Guess what? So did Barak. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. For some reason, he thought he was now negotiating with God. Don't negotiate with God. You know what happens when you negotiate with God? You negotiate yourself out of a blessing. That's what happens when you negotiate with God. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. We come to our third movement here in which we learn the Chirians ain't nothing against God. Do not fear the power of men when you have the power of God. Look at verse 10 here. Sisera here calls out 900 chariots. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father of law, father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zaninim. <laughs> God, say that three times, which is, by the way, near Kedesh. Now, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up on Mount Tabor. Sisera called out his, his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. Friends, as if this story being laid out is to remind you the powers that these people have. 900 chariots of iron. And all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagayim to the river Kishon, and so the battle lines begin to be drawn. And do you know what they need right now? The people of God, they need some encouragement. 
So here in verse 14, Deborah gives assurance of victory yet once again. And why are they assured of victory here, friends? Because it is not their battle, but God's. So notice verse 14, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And you know what happened? The Lord routed Sisera by the sword. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariots and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagaim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. Well, how? How'd that happen, Pastor Dave? Well, you'd have to turn to chapter 5 for that. You see, after this great victory, Deborah sings a song of praise to God. And she gives us a little bit of details. In verses 19 to 22 of chapter 5, we discover that God had caused a rain to cause, remember that river Kishon by the, the battle site there? To overflow. And cause that nice dry field, which is really good driving for chariots, just to become a sloth of mud. And all those big, powerful iron chariots became sitting ducks. Yeah. Friends, trust God. Tells you to do something. God isn't playing it moment by moment. God knows the beginning and the ends. God calls you, do it. And remember that thing about the woman? The woman having the glory in this? Let's take a look and see how that happened. Because friends, in verse 17, we begin to learn a little is much when God is in it. A little is much when God is in it. So Sisera fled into the hands of this woman named Jael. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was a peace between Jabe and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Which is good to know. And in verse 18, Jael showed hospitality. No, 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 friends, let us talk about battle strategies. Do not be friendly to your, your enemies. <laughs> that is exactly not what God said. Jesus said, pray for your enemies, right? So here is Jael showing hospitality. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. <laughs> you can almost hear the laughter in her head. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. You think tucking him in for a nap, Okay. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And here in verse 20, that hospitality becomes the end of his life, where Jael kills Sisera. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. 
until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. And the scripture tells us he died of that. (laughs) And God did exactly what he said he would do. Please don't miss it. God did exactly what he said he would do. And so it seems to me that the wise person would take heed at what God says, knowing that God is at work, and that God always works things out according to his plan for his glory. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons God uses the weak, the unqualified, the overlooked. Because when they do what God calls them to do, Who gets the glory? It is God. Send out 10,000 troops or have a woman standing in the tent? Maybe both. Maybe both. So I want you to notice this. The story doesn't end there. And it is a reminder for those who hear God's word And then begin to negotiate. And behold. Don't don't miss the significance of those words. Oh, and behold. It's, and oh my goodness. Don't miss this part. As Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. He's pinned to the ground with a, 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 tent, a tent peg in his temple. You know? So he went into their tent, and there lies Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. You know what Barak knew right then? I shouldn't have negotiated with God. God said he would give the victory. And I didn't believe him. And yet here it is, demonstrated right before him. And so verse 23, so on that day, we read that God vanquished the king of Canaan. He subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Cabin. My friends, don't forget to praise the Lord when he gives you the victory. That's chapter 5. In verses 1 to 12, Deborah praises the Lord for all of those people. Talks about even the nobles, those wealthy people, got off of their donkeys. It is how carefully I said that. And joined the battle. All of the people together, God used. In verses 13 to 18, Deborah praises the Lord for the volunteers. All of the tribes of Israel were a part of this, but four. Four had figured they had something better to do than see the power of God at work. Verses 19 to 23, Deborah praised the Lord for victory. That Kishon River overflowed to stop the chariots dead in their tracks, my friends. That which they trusted in was not half as great 
as that in which Israel trusted. And in verses 24 to 31, they praise the Lord for a courageous woman. He asked for water. She gave him milk. Then a tent peg through his temple. (laughs) Celebrating that God did exactly what he said he would do. Trust him. Trust him, my friends. What do I mean by that? If you hear the word of God and understand the word of God, the right response is to act on it. Obey him. Do it. Live in light of that truth. And you will not go wrong. So Bible to go. Let's lay it out here, friends. When you've sinned and you see the discipline of God in your life, Cry out to God, he delivers. So I want to recommend a couple of things in light of what we've studied here today. Some things to consider here this morning. First is to identify the sin in your life. What is sin? Sin is inherent selfishness that rolls over people. Just rolls right over them. Not so much concerned about how you feel. I'm going to get what I want. Identify your sin, my friends. And once you've done that, begin to understand your sin by beginning to see the destruction that it wreaks in your life, havoc that it brings. Destruction of relationships as you watch people scarred before you, trail of people wounded because of your selfishness. And when you see it, ask God to forgive and deliver you. Forgive you for your sin and give you the grace to step away from it forsake it, to hate it. And finally, resist the urge to eat your own vomit. Everybody go, ew. Anybody have dogs? Come on, raise them high. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about then, don't you? Peter talks about people who just continue to go back in the same old sin and compares them to a dog returning to their vomit. Because apparently something tastes good in there. If you will see your sin as it is vomitous, the stink and the reek, go ahead, take a moment to imagine the stain it leaves in your rug. Don't go back to it. See it for what it is and don't go back.